Good evening. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Peaches and Pines Paranormal. I'm Mick Robison, your host on this journey into the strange, the bizarre, the frightening, at times the disturbing. So, why Peaches and Pines? Well, I'm originally from South Georgia, and peach orchards are what Georgia is famous for. But, did you know that South Georgia is home to the longleaf pine forests? Dotted with lowland swamps, creeks, and rivers, the longleaf pine forests are vast tracts of land with as much or more high strangeness than the pine barrens of New Jersey or the temperate rainforests of the Pacific Northwest. The difference is, unlike people up north, we southerners tend to be a tight-knit community and more than a little tight-lipped. One just doesn't talk about the strange things they've seen. So the tales of the paranormal from the South don't normally leave the South. But on this podcast, you'll hear some of those very closely guarded secret family stories. So it's only right we start our podcast with two stories from that part of the country. One of our stories tonight will come from Georgia and the second from the piney woods and mountains of northern Alabama. But if you would like to tell your story and possibly get it read on the air, email me at peachesandpines at gmail.com. That's peaches, the letter N, pines at gmail.com. And in case you're wondering, no. You don't have to be from the South to tell your story and get it read. I welcome tales of the paranormal from anywhere in the country. Remember though, describe your encounter. Try to paint a picture. Help us understand what it is you saw, you smelled, you heard, you felt. Be descriptive. The more descriptive, the better. But one thing I ask is, if you want me or if it's okay for me to use your actual name, you need to actually tell me that. Otherwise, I'm gonna go through and change the names. I will edit stories for language. We wanna keep it clean, because we're looking for a, a family-friendly podcast here. I'll edit for language, I'll edit names, and sometimes I'll edit for grammar and flow, but that's the only thing I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna change your stories. But if you want your name used, or it's okay for me to use your name, you're gonna to have to specifically state that. Otherwise, I'm gonna go through and change the names. and. Uh, you know, just to tell you, you may wind up being named after a candy bar when I change the names because Mr. Good Bar, Mr. Hershey, Mr. Crackle, Mr. Score, these, these are names you'll hear rather frequently But because uh, I, I like a little imagination on names, I guess, sometimes. But, um, you know, I just want to let you know I'm not going to use your names. The other thing that I'm going to tell you about this podcast is we will not be doing cancel culture here. You're going to hear people express views that you may not agree with. And some of them are views I may not agree with. I'm not going to judge people. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. And since I'm nowhere near God in my authority or anything else, I don't have a right to judge people for their views. Now that being said, I'm not gonna read someone's political manifesto on the air, okay? I don't, we don't need to know your political views unless it impacts the story. But you may hear some people express views on the paranormal or views about certain people or views about certain historical events, and you may not agree. And you know what? Be tolerant. I know we live in a society today where the people who scream for tolerance the loudest are the most intolerant people. You have to be tolerant, but you can't say anything I disagree with. That tends to be the mantra today. The people that are supposed to be broad-minded, that's what liberal means, Liberal means broad-minded. The people that are supposed to be broad-minded and call themselves liberal are the most intolerant and narrow-minded people you run across today. We see that, all you have to do is turn on the news to see that, and we're not gonna do that here. I want y'all to know this is gonna be a safe space. This is going to be a place where you can talk about your experiences and you're not gonna get laughed at, you're not gonna get ridiculed. And I won't read any email from somebody who ridicules another person. I'm not gonna do it. 
so keep your judgment to yourself and understand there may be views that you don't agree with and you may even find offensive, but their views are right for them. And that's the nature of tolerance is understanding that people are entitled to their views and their views are right for them, even if they're not right for you. And what we're going to find is if you will be broad-minded like that, if you will be truly tolerant and listen to people, you'll start to see interesting patterns. In one of our stories tonight, you see that pattern. Because sometimes a person's personal views greatly affects how they interact with the paranormal. And sometimes how the paranormal interacts with them. All right, so that being said, let's start talking about our first story tonight. I first interviewed Georgia Boy, as he's asked to be called, about five years ago. I got in, back in contact with him not too long ago and had him write down his story. And I'm going to tell you my interview notes in his written account five years later, there's only one point of variance. When I interviewed him five years ago, he said that these events happened in late summer or early fall. And this time he said they happened in fall. That is the only variance after five years between these stories. And that's basically none. So it's a story that's very interesting and one that I think needs to be taken seriously. So that being said, we'll get on with tonight's stories. The first story is going to be from Georgia Boy and is going to happen in Georgia. And the second is going to be from Jimmy and it comes from the piney woods of northern mountainous Alabama. So we're going to start tonight with Georgia Boy's story. And here it is. Just to tell you a little about myself, I'm one of those Southerners that grew up in the days when we were proud to be Southern and children of Dixie. I'm a Georgia boy, and that's what you can call me, Georgia boy. And Georgia is my heart and my home. I grew up in a time when people proclaimed loudly that I'm American by birth, but I am Southern by the grace of God. I grew up in a time when politically correct was not even a phrase. A real man or a real woman said what he meant and meant what he said. There was a genteel nature to those words, to be sure, but you said them with a fire in your eyes. Every home embraced the Bible and took off their hat in respect when anyone mentioned a relative that had fought in any war, especially the war of Northern aggression, whether they were Confederate or Union, because people died in sanctified ground with their blood for beliefs they held dear. It was not your place to argue if you agreed with them or not. You honored their bravery and you honored their sacrifice. I grew up in a South, though, that still remembered the real reasons for that war, not the propaganda of the victor. I can remember our teachers saying, to the victor goes the history book, and then they tossed the school book aside and teach us the real reasons for the Southern secession. That's the world I was born into. Whether or not people agree with that, it's the world that raised me. It was the world that I see vilified and murdered today. No wonder the soldiers from so long ago are restless. The Confederate soldiers from that era don't like being made out to be slave-loving rubes that had no value for human life. Most, and a lot of Northerners don't know this, didn't own slaves. The vast population of the South didn't own slaves. And my brother-in-law found that out the hard way. It was about 20 years ago when it happened. I married a Yankee. I know it doesn't sound right to say nowadays, but I should have known better. Dad always said, you don't just marry a woman, you marry your family too. We were living in Atlanta. We were pretty well off too. Buckhead was our area. We were young and well-to-do and things were good then. She was a Boston Yankee and had never lived in the South before, but had moved to Atlanta for a job with a big corporation. I was an engineer with a pretty substantial firm. We did construction. My wife, God bless her, just wasn't cut out for life in God's country. She was the most bug-phobic human being I've ever seen. 
I grew up with a sister that would dig through cow patties for worms and go fishing with them and hook the worms herself. She would fish with crickets with no problem. She even went and got a mess of roaches out of the barn one time to fish with. That's the kind of woman I was used to. My wife was nothing like my sister, my mother, my grandmother, or the neighbor girl down the road for that matter. Maybe that's what attracted me to her. You know, they say opposites attract until they drive you nuts. My brother-in-law was a whole other matter. He didn't scream and jump on a chair when he saw a fly. He just looked disgusted. If he saw a cricket, he didn't scream. He just looked disgusted. If he saw a roach, he just looked disgusted. If he saw someone fishing, he just looked disgusted. He looked disgusted at everything, honestly. Whenever he would visit, he would just look like the most miserable person you've ever seen in your life. Dad said he looked like he had green persimmon face. That about sums it up all right. Now back then, the Confederacy was a big deal in a positive way in the South. We honored our sacred dead and honored their memory. Remember that, it becomes important later. This particular fall, we decided to go and look around North Georgia and see the changing of the leaves. And I had sort of proposed that we go and visit all the state parks up there. My brother-in-law, I'll call him Bob, but that's not his name, and his family went with us. They and their kids had just moved down from Boston owing to his wife getting a job at a local college. Old Bob Persimmon Face was a dyed-in-the-wool mooch. His wife made the real living. He was a house husband half the time, and every once in a while he'd get the notion and he'd get a job for a few weeks here or a few weeks there. Now, my wife and I didn't have kids, not wanting to start a family just yet because of our careers, we told ourselves, but I can admit now that I didn't want kids, not that I didn't want kids ever. Truth is, I just didn't want kids with her. I can admit that now. I couldn't admit that at the time. We divorced about five years after this incident, and I married a Southern girl, and we were happy with kids. Our kids grew up, and they turned out pretty good. I don't hear from my ex-wife or that side of the family. I haven't since the divorce. And I know it sounds callous, but I'm just fine with that. Well, this particular fall, we decided, like I said, to go on a tour of North Georgia and visit the state parks. It was my idea. And we'd all taken several weeks off and we were going on this tour. And to say that Bob was less than enthused is kind of an understatement. Of course, he looked disgusted. His wife, I'll call her Betty, again, that's not her name, she was anything but disgusted. She was actually enthusiastic. She was from the Midwest, Nebraska. To be honest with you, I kind of liked her. I wondered why she was with old Persimmon Face. She was smart, open-minded, didn't seem to hate everything, she was what my mom described as bubbly. We started at the highest point in Georgia, Black Rock Mountain. <clears throat> and hey, I'm just going to break into the story for a second to say, Black Rock Mountain, I like that mountain. It's a nice mountain. Nice. Spelled G-N-E-I-S-S -S because nice, that's, that's what it's made of. It's a metamorphic rock. The whole, rock, the whole mountain is made out of nice. Y'all look it up. Anyway, sorry, I had to break in for the dad joke. Anyway, back to Georgia Boy's story. We then went to Tallulah Gorge, Unicoi, Vogel, Amicalola Falls, Red Top Mountain, Etowah Indian Mounds. And then we were heading back up toward Cloudland Canyon. It was at that point we stopped off at Risaka Battlefield. That was my idea. I never missed a chance to see a, a war between the states battlefield. But it's at that battlefield that things, things changed. Things got, frankly, they got weird. If you don't know Risaka Battlefield, it's part of what we in the South called Sherman's Rape to the Sea. The Union soldiers were moving across the South, raping, burning, murdering, and pillaging, while the bulk of the forces in the Army of Northern Virginia were fighting up north. 
The Union rabble and mob would show military discipline in battle, but barbarian conduct afterwards. But your history books will never tell you that. And the North will never admit what Sherman and his rape gangs did. That's right. Sherman allowed organized rape gangs and looting gangs to move through the cities he bombarded and took and then moved on to the next target like a satanic swarm of locusts. Resaca was one of those battles in which Sherman's rape to the sea ran up against the smaller and badly diminished Army of Tennessee. The battle lasted from May 13th through 15th in 1864. Short battle, but sacred blood was spilled, and when that happens, you need to be respectful. Bob was sour. He'd been reasonably okay to deal with most of the trip, mostly because he slept in the car and seemed to tolerate hiking well enough that he didn't complain about it. Betty was a barrage of questions about everything we saw that fall. I didn't mind. She had some brains and was curious. My wife got annoyed. I was more amused. When we got to the battlefield, though, things changed in attitude with Bob. He went from sour to downright hateful. I wanted to walk the battlefield. I do that whenever I go to any of these war between the state battlefields. I want to see what the soldiers would have seen of the lay of the land and imagine the opposing forces. I try to do it from both sides. I walk the Union lines, I walk the Southern line, Confederate lines just to try to get a better understanding. And that's why, by the way, that after I went to Gettysburg, I'll never understand Pickett's charge. I'll never understand that waste of life. I was walking along the battlefield when Bob began grumbling. Why do we care about this? We kicked your butts, just accept it. You Southerners keep clinging to this glorious lost cause stuff. You just can't accept the fact that you were beaten. I've always said the South was just pissed they lost their slaves. All these Christian Southerners and their slaves. Decent people beat the barbarians like Caesar beating the French, he said. I was used to him, but I was really getting the urge to deck him at this point. By the way, Caesar didn't fight the French. I know that. Caesar fought the Celts, namely a group of Celts called the Gauls, with some Germanic tribes thrown in as allies to the Gauls. Shows you what Bob Persimmon face knows about history, though. For about an hour to an hour and a half, he just would make comments and needle me about the Confederates. But when we, we came to the angle, that's when things got strange. Now, the bloody angle was a fight up north that was part of the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse on May 9th through 21st in 1864. It overlapped with the Battle of Resaca. But don't confuse the two. There was a battle of the angle at Resaca, but it's not the battle of the bloody angle in Spotsylvania Courthouse. But because the battles overlap in time and because they're also similar in name, a lot of people get them confused. We were touring the angle when Bob started again about slaves. Suddenly he stopped in mid-sentence and just sort of stared. Well, I guess he stared. He was actually walking a little behind me. And I turned when he went silent because I'd started to let him have it. I was letting him know at this point what an idiot he was and letting him know how ignorant he was about conf Confederate history. And if he didn't like the South, he could go the hell home to Boston. And if he didn't show respect for the brave men that fought here, I was going to deck him. I noticed something was wrong. Whenever I start talking like that and criticizing his ignorance, he usually starts getting snide and snotty. But he was silent this time. I turned, and that's when I saw him. He had turned completely around, facing the Confederate lines. He wasn't pale. He didn't look like the blood had drained from his face or anything like that, like you hear about. But he did look confused. I could see him as he turned his head and looked. He, he, he just had this expression of, of puzzlement, of confusion. I yelled his name, and he shook his head a little and turned back to look at me with the same confused look on his face. Now, his wife, my wife, and the kids, their kids, were waiting by the car. He and I had walked the battlefield together. I don't know why he came, he'd come with me, but 
he did. I suspect it was to have fun at my expense. So we were alone, and I was ahead of him when we were talking. But now I'd turned around, and he turned to face me with that look of shock and confusion on his face. And it was then that I noticed his cheek. It almost glowed, it was so red. It looked for all the world like someone had either decked him or slapped him for me. He started to walk toward me after I said his name again, and he stumbled a little and staggered like he was unsteady. What's wrong with you, I asked. Um, nothing. I thought I saw one of those reenactors. As he spoke, the nostril on the same side of the red cheek trickled a little blood. He dabbed at it because he felt it obviously flow onto his lip, cussed, and said, let's get out of here. I'm sick of this. He then strode past me, and that was the end of the trip for him. He and his wife went on. They were, we were in two separate cars, luckily. And he and his wife and kids got on and went to the hotel. I went ahead and finished my tour of the battlefield as my wife waited on me. I just kind of shrugged the whole thing off. We were staying at a hotel that night near I-75 and were planning our last leg of the trip to Cloudland Canyon State Park. I was looking forward to the end of the vacation. I never thought I'd ever say that about the vacation, but I was looking forward to the end of it this time. Frankly, my wife and my brother-in-law were just grating on my nerves. I felt like I had to get back to work to actually relax. It would have been fine going with anyone else, but Yankees. Stopping off at a Confederate battlefield with Yankees, it was just a bad idea. I'd had enough of Yankees and was realizing that no matter what and no matter how fed up I was with them, I wasn't going to be able to get away from them because one of them was coming home with me. Now, I have to say, I did love my wife. But our marriage had kind of started going a little rocky, mostly because, I have to admit, I lost a lot of respect for her. She just wasn't tough. She couldn't take things. She was soft and spoiled, and I had just about had enough of it. I think our marriage would have ended in divorce no matter what, but honestly, this trip, was when our divorce hoved into view right on the horizon. I'll explain that a little later. The next morning at breakfast, Bob looked like death warmed over. His cheek was a nasty purple, and he looked like he hadn't slept. Betty pointedly asked me if I decked him, but I hadn't. Did he fall, she asked. If he did, he fell and got back up before I turned around. I don't know what he did, I answered. She then told me he was restless and awake most of the night. I wasn't surprised getting a look at him, but she did tell me at one point that she thought he had a sinus infection because she'd heard him choke and gag during the night. Well, we went on to Cloudland Canyon, and Bob stayed behind. Betty didn't stay with him, but she did tell him to go to a doctor. Now, she put up a brave face, but I could tell she was fretting about him most of the day, but she wouldn't say it. You could just see it in her face. She was worried about him. Me, I'd had enough of him, that I was, and I was mad enough at him that I just had a blast and didn't worry about him. The next few nights in that part of the country were great for me. I never slept so well or felt so refreshed in the morning in my life. My wife, well, she saw some bugs, and that had kind of done the trip in for her. Full-fledged bug paranoia, but I largely ignored her. Bob, well, not so good. One night, scratches apparently appeared on his back, according to his wife, and the other cheek swelled up. Bob, he chalked it up to having a sinus infection, and now it was bilateral, he said. The next night, the two of them vanished. They left us a message that they were going home because Bob was sick, and they were calling the vacation off early. My wife and I completed the vacation. To be honest, well, things got a little bit better between my wife and I for the rest of that trip with her brother gone. But over the next few weeks, things went downhill for Bob and Betty. He was plagued by dreams and waking nightmares. Not that I knew any of this at the time. Betty told me about it later. 
In fact, I didn't find any find anything out about any of this for months. Things apparently got really, really bad. One day I was in my office at work, and it was about three and a half, maybe four months after our trip. I was going, going over some typical construction engineering work when Betty, looking haggard and desperate, burst into my office. Now, I have to say that neither Betty nor her brother had ever darkened my office door before, nor even called me at work, so I knew something was wrong. She sat down in the chair on the other side of my desk and looked at me with the most pleading, desperate expression I've ever seen on a woman's face. What happened at that battlefield, she asked. What do you mean, I responded. What happened at that battlefield? What do you mean? I responded again. I, I don't understand what you're asking me, I said. He's seeing things. I'm seeing things. What happened? What happened on that battlefield? What did he say? What did you hear? Who is this soldier? I was totally taken aback. I had no idea what she was talking about. I had to get her to explain. Here's what she described to me. Bob said he saw a Confederate soldier on the battlefield that day, staring at him with murderous eyes. He felt a hit on his cheek when the soldier raised his rifle and struck out with the butt toward him. But the soldier was all the way across the field at a distance. Still, Bob said that he felt pain in his cheek when the soldier jabbed the butt of his rifle toward him. He looked up after grabbing his cheek and looked back at the soldier, but he was gone. That night, he'd been restless and swore the soldier was looking in the window of the hotel at them. The following night, Betty claimed that this soldier attacked Bob because the other cheek swelled. Bob couldn't remember the night, though. Betty had slept through it. Things had gotten worse at home, though. Bob had wanted to leave North Georgia hoping to escape, so they'd gone home. Betty said that the respite only lasted about three nights. Three nights of peace, and then what she called activity started. I don't have time to go into everything she told me. The truth is, I, I've tried to put most of it out of my mind. I, I don't want to remember most of the things that she told me. I took off work for the rest of the day so she could come home with me and sit and tell me everything. Mostly, though, I'll be honest, I was afraid that the other people in the office would overhear. You know, in the South, we're pretty religious. And you don't talk about ghost stories or people think you've been doing things you shouldn't. She told me that the activity at their house had started with whistling. She told me she heard whistling, but she couldn't make it out. It was indistinct. But it became more distinct. It became a song. Then it became two songs. She heard it so much she could even whistle it herself. She whistled them for me and I knew them immediately. The first one she whistled was Rose of Alabama. The other one was When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Then she said she heard a voice mumbling, indistinct. Bob heard it also. Like the whistling, it started becoming more clear over time, but neither could make out the words at first. But then footsteps came, whistling, indistinct mumbling, and then footsteps walking their halls at night up and down the stairs. This all happened over the course of about a month or so. Then the attacks came. She told me several things about the attacks. They always targeted Bob, and it would always be at that voice before the attack. Eventually, the voice became recognizable. Our battle cry, freedom or death. That's what the voice would say. Then Bob would be attacked. He would be pinched, gouged, scratched, slapped, hit. 
Each time the attacks would happen, there would be the disembodied voice. There'd be whistling, then a whisper, and then a rather clear, our battle cry, freedom or death. Bob had forbidden her to talk to me about all of this, at least for a while. He'd flown back to Boston. That's why she'd come to me. He thought he could escape by getting up to Boston to his parents' house. But apparently he was wrong. He called her that day, the day she came to see me. Apparently it had followed him all the way to Boston. Bob apparently had grown desperate because now he'd asked her to come see me. Three months of torture and Bob was finally willing to reach out for help. The bad part was I had no idea what the whole thing was and no idea what to do about it. She then pulled out a cassette recorder. I can't describe the things she recorded. The whistling was there. The whispers, the mumbling, and a disembodied voice that sounded like a gruff drill sergeant that had smoked 40 packs of cigarettes. She stopped the tape and explained that they'd gotten to the point they would push record on the tape recorder anytime they felt the room change. Sometimes nothing would happen, but increasingly, when the room felt like it was changing, things would start up. She now had several cassettes with what people today would call EVPs. Some were enough to make your blood run cold. Screams. I can't forget the screams, she recorded. On the fly, I told her, Bob has to come back and face this thing. This soldier was insulted. He made out that Confederates are a bunch of degenerate slave owners. I'll bet you 10 bucks this guy never owned a slave in his life and took exception to what Bob said. He pissed off one of these dead soldiers and now he's gonna pay the price. What's more, Bob's yellow. He's a yellow coward to this guy. He's not man enough to apologize or face him. He's running and that's making him more of a target. He's got to come back and face this soldier on the battlefield and apologize for what he said. When I said that, Betty looked like I had slapped her. How did you know he never owned a slave, she asked. Most of the soldiers didn't. Most Southerners didn't own slaves. Most couldn't afford slaves. It was pretty much a, a, an elite, rich plantation owner thing. She then told me during one of the attacks, the thing had bodily slammed Bob against the wall when Bob shouted at it. Bob had shouted that he wanted it out of the house and told it to get your slaver ass out of, out of my house. The thing had then slammed Bob against the wall. She pulled out a cassette, put it in the recorder, and fast forwarded it a few times, and we sat there and listened. It took a little bit for her to find it, but then she found the area she wanted on the tape. I heard Bob tell the thing to get its slaver ass out of the house. Then came the voice I'd heard on the other tapes. It was even more enraged this time. Never owned a slave. Maybe you'll be my first. It was clear on the tape in that same gravelly gruff voice. It was absolutely clear. I've heard some of these EVPs that they show on these, these television shows with these idiots that go around looking for this stuff. And their EVPs, sometimes they'll say, oh, it's saying this, and you're sitting there listening to it, and you can't make out what it's really saying. This wasn't like that. This was clear as day. He's got to apologize, I told her. He has to, or this thing's going to kill him. Either that, or he needs to go to a preacher. That was a no-go. Bob was an atheist, and I knew it. But I wasn't thinking about Bob's atheism. I was thinking about the fact that this thing was going to go after his wife and his kids next in all likelihood. It wasn't long before Bob and I were in a car together, though. She went home that day and apparently called Bob and told him what I'd said. Bob came in the next day. A day or two after that, as I recall, he and I... We're in a car together and heading toward Resaca. We were headed to the angle. I can't describe Bob. Sourpuss was gone. He looked like a man who'd aged 10 years. Not intended to be humor here. I use this to, to be honest. He looked haunted. 
He looked like someone that had been hunted for years. He was shaken, broken, and he wasn't scared. This man was in abject terror. When we got to the battlefield, we walked out as near as I could remember to where we'd been standing, and Bob fell to his knees, and he began to beg. I've never seen a person beg for their life before, but I really, truly believe that that is what Bob was doing. I think Bob knew this thing was going to kill him, and he was begging for his life. He pleaded for a full, at least a full 15 minutes. He cried, but he just kept looking at me. He says, nothing's changed, nothing's changed. It's still after me. It's like he could feel the weight on his shoulders. And then he was done. It's like resignation just finally set in. I never liked Bob. I don't like him to this day. He was too miserable, angry, arrogant, ignorant. He was just an unlikable person. But I have to say, I have never felt more sorry for a human being in my life. And I don't know what made me say it. This is a man that, frankly, I wouldn't have peed on him if he was on fire. I know that's terrible to say. But I stood up for him this time. I stepped forward and I looked toward the Confederate lines. And I told them that I was Georgia born and Georgia bred. And when I died, I'd be Georgia dead. I told them that I was a Confederate to the heart. I was a son of the Confederacy and the inheritor of their legacy. And I told them, this is enough. Then something came over me. Something in my head just snapped. And I said, in the name of the Lord God, it is enough. How dare you act like imps of the devil and torture the living. This is something that dishonors the South. You dishonor the Confederacy. You dishonor General Jackson. Do you think General Stonewall Jackson would have ever sanctioned this? If he knew you did something like that, he'd have you shot in a firing squad. You're dishonoring General Lee, General Hood, Longstreet. You dishonor every person that died for the cause because we are better than that. We're better than Yankees because we have honor. It's the kind of thing a Yankee would do, torturing somebody. In the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand down and stop. I said it with conviction and anger. And I was angry. I can't believe I did it. And I don't know what made me say it. I, I don't talk like that. That's not the way I phrase things. That's not the way I talk. But it was like something put the words in my mouth. I'll, I'll never be able to describe it. I'll never be able to understand why I said what I said. But Bob got up, turned, without saying a word, he walked to the car. When I got in, he told me to drive. I did. He was quiet for miles. And then he said, he's gone. That was the last time I saw Bob was that day. He packed his bags and left with his wife and returned to Boston. My wife followed a few years later. In our divorce, she stated that my people's treatment of her family was one of the reasons for the divorce, particularly how my people had treated her brother. So yeah, I think this incident had a lot to do with my divorce. Betty came back. She divorced Bob, oh, I'd say about a year and a half or two years before my wife and I divorced. We still talk. She's kind of like a cousin or or. or you know, a somewhat removed relative. We don't spend a whole lot of time together, but we see her on holidays. She comes over for Christmas and Thanksgiving. So yeah, I think this incident 
had a lot to do with Betty and her divorce, too. We've talked about it a few times. And I think it has a lot to do with why Betty and I are so close. It bonded us together like family somehow. Again, we're not like sisters, but she's part of the family. My wife is a Southern girl, like I said, and she's Southern to the core and very educated, but has her own paranormal experiences under her belt, I guess. She's told me about some of the things that she experienced when she was growing up. So this is not something she finds off-putting or bizarre. She believes me. And she believes Betty. Betty still has the tapes, and my current wife has heard them. She's welcomed Betty into the family. My kids call her Aunt Betty, and we live a pretty quiet life. My Yankee ex-wife never even asked for alimony. I remember when we were sitting in the meeting and our lawyers were with us and our lawyer asked, well, aren't you going to ask for alimony? She said, no. And when he asked why, right in front of me, she said that my people, indicating me, his people, she said, would go after her family again if she asked for alimony. I guess I should be grateful to the Confederate soldier for that. I never heard from my ex-wife or Bob again. I don't think it ever came back. I don't think it haunted him again. If it did, I expect I'd be getting a call. So that's my story. Take it or leave it. I don't know how much of this to believe myself, frankly. I, I, I only witnessed the bruises and heard the tapes. I never saw any of the events at the house. I never saw the, the soldier peering in windows or heard the, the footsteps while I was actually there. But Bob wasn't a person to put any effort into anything, so I don't think he faked it or hoaxed it. But I did see one bit of proof that's irrefutable in my eyes. I saw what it did to them. I saw what it did to Bob. I saw a broken man. The only thing I can say is you have to respect the dead. If you don't, they might just teach you respect. Well, that's quite a story, isn't it? Thanks, Georgia boy. That is a good story. I think you hit the nail on the head there. The disrespect, especially the disrespect and ignorance, I think angered the ghost of a dead soldier. Maybe his apology did the job, but I don't think so. I think you shamed the spirits, and I think your invocation of the name of God got their attention. And who knows, maybe God himself stepped in. Who knows? But I will say this, you took a risk that day. The entity or another one like it could have attached itself to you. So um, I can't argue with the results if they work, but man, did you take a risk. And I can't recommend that anybody, el uh, anybody else take on spirits like that. You need to go to a, a minister for that kind of work. You need people trained in how to deal with the spiritual world. But uh, God bless you, brother, and I'm glad everything worked out. Our next story comes from the northern mountains of Alabama, and it's a skookum story. Skookum's a term that comes out of the Mount St. Helens area. It means mountain devil. And for those of y'all that ain't cultured enough to know what skookums are, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Jimmy writes, I grew up around Sand Mountain in the area of Gadsden and Rainbow City, Alabama. I used to spend time on my aunt and uncle's farm. They were poor, but they were good people. And when I was growing up, this is back in the 50s, they didn't even have electricity. Harbin was a hardworking man and Goldie was just as hardworking as her husband. They were good to me and treated me well despite being poor farmers. It was a hard life, but a good one. Now, I never heard anyone talk about Sasquatch in those days. We didn't even know what that was. We didn't have the word Bigfoot in those days. 
we had our share of catamounts. Catamounts are just the North Alabama word for mountain lions. Uncle Harbin used to tell me not to go out in the woods because of the catamounts and the bears. We had black bears and we had mountain lions. And by the way, in the 1950s, yeah, catamounts were still there, despite what everybody says. And we saw them. We saw bears too. Uncle Harbin had been telling me and my cousins and my sisters about the catamounts and bears on the mountains for some time, so we knew it could be dangerous up there. But we didn't think anything would ever come into the farm. I can remember that it was a cold winter when Uncle Harbin came down and was visiting my family and told my mother about a strange occurrence up on the farm. Someone had broken into his farm's barn and had gotten into his sweet feed for the jackass and the horses. He told my mother that it looked like the person had ripped the padlock and hasp right off the door. He was thinking they must have used a car because he said, they had to have hooked a cable or chain to it, but I never heard a car. I can't figure out how on earth they did that without waking Goldie. I put my slippers on and it wakes her up. I can't figure out how they could have used a car, revved an engine, and I just don't know. A few weeks later, he would come for Sunday supper and tell Mama that he had been out in the field looking at the ground. Spring was around the corner, and he was out strowing hay as a, a sort of mulch that they used to use back then when sowing seeds. They'd strow hay and then strow seeds in there, and the, the hay would help insulate the seeds as the days got a little warmer. It was almost time to start planting the winter crops for spring harvest. They planted things like collards and mustard greens and turnip greens. Sometimes they even planted cabbage, and I remember that he was planting cabbage that year, I think. But he heard some strange noises when he was out in the field, he told Mama. He said all of a sudden rocks started coming off the mountain and landing all around him like someone was throwing rocks at him. A couple of weeks later, I was up there. Uncle Harbin was nervous. Something was wrong with him, Aunt Goldie too. And this must have been March because Harbin was out getting in the fields and was actually planting seeds. I remember he was planting cabbage, collards, and mustard greens. And I remember him commenting that he might let some of the mustard greens go to seeds and actually make mustard. That evening, I was spend, since I was spending the weekend with him, we all sat around to dinner, and Harbin was just not Uncle Harbin. He was always a quiet man, but he was downright mute this night. Goldie was on edge, and they seemed to be watching the windows a lot. And Harbin had actually made it hot in the house. He kept the fire going a lot higher than he normally would. Well, we ate dinner, and Goldie sent me and my cousin to bed. That night, we woke up to the most ungodly sounds I've ever heard. I can't, I can't describe what we, what we heard. It was some sort of howls and just a ruckus outside. Harbin ran past our door, and he was still dressed in his jeans and flannel shirt with dirt on it. He, he hadn't even showered. Goldie was asking him what it was. Only God and the devil know what that is, Harbin said. He was holding a double-barrel shotgun. My cousin and I had gotten out of bed and were looking down the hall to the living room when we saw him standing there with his shotgun in hand, looking this way and that, not knowing what to do. Then there was a crash. My God, Harbin said. He's going to flip over the car. More crashes, more howls, more noises. The horses were spooked and neighing. The jackass was sounding off in the night. We heard chickens. It was just a, a ruckus out there that we couldn't tell what was going on. And the howls and crashes and animal noises went on for several hours. I don't remember too much more than us huddled in the dark with the light of the lantern on until the noises just stopped right before dawn. I fell asleep at some point. I remember waking up in the late morning and Uncle Harbin had apparently gone and come back with the sheriff. The sheriff was talking to Uncle Harbin and they were looking at something in the dirt. How big is that? The sheriff asked. I'd say about five hands, Uncle Harbin said. 
Who has feet that big? The sheriff asked. What is more like it? Was Harbin's response. Now, Harbin, the sheriff said, you're a sober sort, but you go around telling folks a hank came out of the woods and left five hand tracks in your yard, and they're going to say you've been hitting the bottle. The sheriff must have noticed me and my cousin at that point because he stopped, whispered something to Harbin, and the next thing I know, Harbin is shooing us into the house with Goldie. My mother came and picked me up about an hour after that. Harbin and Goldie never spoke of it again. There were rumors of a posse going after it, but never getting anything, but I have never been able to confirm that, that even happened. I never knew what it was. Harbin and Goldie never said. I guess I'll never know. But if it was a bear, Harbin was familiar enough with catamounts and bears that I can't believe he would have acted the way he did. I can only conclude it was something else, and I never knew. But the older I've gotten, the more I've become convinced that it must have been a Sasquatch. Well, that's about all I can say about the matter. Never heard anything else about it again. But there were rumors around the mountain for years that there was something in the woods, but nobody would talk about it. Or if they did, they sure didn't let us kids know. Well, those are two great stories. If anyone listening out there has a great paranormal story, send it to me. The email address is peachesandpines at gmail.com. All lowercase, that's peaches, the letter N, pines at gmail.com. Remember to keep the language clean so we can have a family-friendly show. But if you have a story of the paranormal, send it my way and I just might read it on the air. And if you've enjoyed tonight's episode, subscribe to the podcast and we'll have new content coming soon. Thank you and good night.